Welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby, and my guest today is Dr. Dan Wilson. Dr. Dan Wilson, how are you doing today? And thank you for being here. Hey, Brian, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I have a brief bio on you, and then we shall get started. Dr. Wilson is a molecular biologist and science communicator. He got his bachelor's degree in molecular biology and biotechnology from Clarion University and his PhD in biological sciences from Carnegie Mellon University. After getting his PhD, he began working for Eurofins as a process analytical scientist and is now currently a senior associate scientist at Janssen working on gene therapies. In his spare time, he produces and hosts Debunk the Funk, his YouTube channel dedicated to debunking vaccine and COVID-related misinformation, and also it has expanded beyond those topics. Now, I know you're busy. I say in your spare time, you just recently had a second child. Is that correct? Is that okay to ask? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, he was born, um, he's less than two months old. Wow. So are you sleep yeah. deprived? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're being reminded what it's like to have a newborn. We have a two and a half year old. So it wasn't that long ago, but man, we <laughs> being reminded makes it seem like we forgot quickly what it's like. That's the point, right? Nature, you forget. And then you say, oh, that'd be fun to do again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Nature makes you forget, and you're like, yeah, we could have another one. And then <laughs> when you're in it, you're like, why did we do this? All right, so I did give you a bio, but for, tell me a little bit more about your background, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, so I got my PhD at Carnegie Mellon University uh, doing uh, molecular and structural biology work, uh, studying how ribosomes are made in cells. And that was, uh, for me, a good lesson in just how to do basic science. It was really intense. Uh, we tackled some really difficult problems. I got to learn a lot of really cool techniques, meet a lot of cool people. Um, but I've always kind of been into science communication. Uh, and a big reason of that, a big reason for that is uh, back when I was younger, like middle school, early high school years, uh, I was really deep into conspiracy theories. Uh, I wholeheartedly believed some. Uh, and it wasn't until I started actually learning about the scientific method, how it's done and how the scientific community is really structured on a global scale that I started to come out of those beliefs. And of course, along the way, there were really great teachers and even some really great YouTube channels. <laughs> so, you know, YouTube was part of how I got into conspiracy theories, but there were also some great YouTube channels that helped me get out because there were some people who were communicating science really well. And so towards the end of my PhD, um, I figured, you know, why don't I just try to make a YouTube channel? Just do it. I've been thinking about it for a while. Maybe I'll help someone like me out there who believes in conspiracy theories, but could be convinced otherwise with evidence. Um, and so that's what I did. I just started a YouTube channel my own time. And then that was January 2020, I believe I uploaded my first video, then COVID happened. <laughs> and so my little side project uh, got more attention than I had expected, uh, which is okay. And I just keep doing it when I can. How long did it take? Well, this is interesting to me and actually something I wanted to talk about anyway, because, you know, you must have been smart in high school to go through and get a science degree and a, a PhD. All right. So how did you 
fall prey to some conspiracy theories. But before I say that, I mean, the reason that I think this is important is because I like to reiterate, we're all susceptible, right? So if someone mm -hmm. that has a PhD is watching this and say, oh, that could never happen to me. Yeah, that's not true. It's just <laughs> given the right circumstances, we are all susceptible, whether it's a, a conspiracy theory or medical misinformation or even falling prey to, to a psychic. That's a good con mm -hmm. man. Um, so can you give me an example of one and how long you believed it and how long it took you to work your way out of it? Oh, yeah. Uh, I believed in the 9-11 conspiracy. I thought it was an inside job. Um, I believed that for maybe, maybe like four years. Well, how old so were you? Years. How old? I was young. I was, this was probably like ages 14 to 18. Okay. Um, and I, it started just by watching YouTube videos, um, just getting sucked in. And, you know, I was, I've always been naturally really curious about things. I wanted, I liked to learn things. Um, but when I found YouTube, uh, these YouTube documentaries that were pretending to teach you things, it felt like I was being let in on some really secret knowledge that I was finding out really interesting things. And it just felt like I was learning on my own time. And it just sucked me in and grabbed me. And so, um, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly believed that for maybe about four years. Um, and there were some other things that I believed, like I believed that the medical industry was hiding cancer cures. Um, I never quite got into being anti-vaccine, but, um, there were, uh, there were some medical like ideas that I fell prey to as well. Um, but getting out of it was, um, I'd say a, at least a mo uh, several months long process. Um, it really, I describe it as like a chipping away kind of thing, because when you believe a conspiracy theory, you build this, you build this really, uh, what really big web that ends up being actually pretty delicate because for me, believing something like 9-11 was, was an inside job. It was okay. This involves like how many, how many departments in the government? This involves how many people who have investigated it. This involves how many scientists who have participated in the cover-up or just ignored it. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger until I started being exposed to ideas that were totally ridiculous. And I would say, okay, well, I don't believe that, but I still believe all this. And then as I kept trying to defend it, as I kept trying to defend those ideas, every once in a while, someone would uh, bring up a really good argument and I wouldn't be able to address it. And so I would never admit it to them, of course, because I was entrenched in these ideas and I was way too proud to admit I was wrong. But, um, in the moment I would think, okay, well, that person got me there. I am going to accept that that's not true, but I still believe all this other stuff. Um, but that kept happening over time. And so it kept chipping away and crumbling until, Eventually, I just said, there's nothing to this. I can't, I can't in good faith believe this anymore. Um, and then I started, you know, actually going to college for uh, biology in my undergraduate. Uh, I met really awesome teachers, started learning more about uh, how science works. I took an awesome class called Science and Society. Uh, I oh. wish more 
curricula offered classes like that. Um, and it just, I got to see how when scientific, when the scientific community on a global scale is really just this organization of a bunch of nerds who are really competitive, always trying to disprove each other and always trying to disprove their own ideas before someone else does. So they don't look silly. It, it's, it's really hard to believe a conspiracy theory at that point, a conspiracy theory like nine 11 is, is my job anyway. So yeah, uh, I'd say by the time I started my, um, freshman year in undergraduate, I was pretty much out of those beliefs, but then, um, there was, there were several more months of, uh, just coming into who I was outside of those beliefs, if that makes sense. Another reason I, I like that you mentioned the conspiracy theories and how you worked out of it is because I just saw a recent video that you did with Lydia Green, correct? Mm -hmm. A former anti-vaxxer. And mm -hmm. her story was pretty interesting, similar to yours um, in a way, because before being anti-vax, she worked at a pharmaceutical company as a quality control chemist. And correct me if I'm wrong on any of this because I'm pulling it out. You know? <laughs> right? so yeah, she, I, believe she, I believe she was a pharmacist. Yeah. Oh, okay, a pharmacist. But still, something like, something like that. I'm a sorry. person not unfamiliar with science and research and trials, right? Because pharmacy schools, you know, it's full of science, of course. So, mm -hmm. but she didn't become anti-vax due to some conspiracy that she saw in her own industry. But again, correct me here. I think she felt slighted or not taken seriously when she had difficulty breastfeeding her first child. And she sought advice from medical professionals and they kind of, I don't know if poo-pooed it is the wrong word, but they kind of brushed it off, right? And then mm -hmm. a second time um, when she had another uh, poor experience when she had her child vaccinated and her usually happy child cried for hours. And so, you know, for reassurance or for some reason, she called her pediatrician to check in. And, but she felt, you know, oh, that's, they were kind of waving her off about that too. So she didn't become anti-vaccine because of a conspiracy, but because she felt slighted from a contemporary experience she had, right? Mm. And then she went down the rabbit hole, but she gave it up as you did because she saw some inconsistencies in the group that she happened to be in. I'm bringing this up because I'm wondering what some kind of feedback you've gotten from anti-vaxxers that may reach out to you. But um, the reason I mention it specifically is because it became apparent during COVID-19 that black Americans were more hesitant around the vaccines than other groups. And it was just attributed to historical mistreatment, like no wonder, you know, the Tuskegee thing, all this mistreatment in that community over the decades um, from the U.S. government. But a recent study out of UCLA contradicts that. And it points more to the fact of contemporary personal bad experiences, personal bad experiences people mm. have with the system, not historical knowledge creating vaccine rejection. Um, I don't know if you can comment on that, because I'm wondering if you get emails or feedback from anti-vaxxers with the rationale on why they are anti-vax. I, I bring up the uh, black American community because it just, the study was just recent and it kind of opened my eyes like, oh, well, maybe it's not historical. Maybe it's people, people in general feel mistreated and then they go down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, as far as the reasons people are anti-vax goes, I think there are, are many reasons. Uh, people, so a lot of people believe it because they uh, don't trust the government, they don't trust science, uh, and therefore they have to build a elaborate belief system to justify that mistrust. Um, other people like Lydia might have had a bad experience with a doctor uh, or 
they might just very naturally, I mean, it's perfectly understandable to feel uncomfortable um, after your child gets vaccinated and they, you see that pain, you see them cry. I mean, I got my, I'm obviously have both my kids vaccinated and it sucks when you have to go into that appointment and they get poked and they cry. Like, it's not fun, but uh, they're fine after five minutes, really, usually. Um, and it's very understandable for a parent to have that fear uh, of their child feeling any pain or getting hurt at all. And so then combine that fear with exposure to these ideas that the vaccines are poison and they're doing this and they're causing that. Um, and then put letters behind the names of, or in front of the names of the people who are saying it, and it can be kind of scary. So I can totally understand how people can get sucked in that way. Um, so yeah, there are lots of different reasons that people become anti-vaccine. Um, in the recent COVID pandemic, I think a big reason was that it was politicized. It was heavily, heavy, heavily politicized. Um, and it's also something that just affected all of our lives. Everybody was affected by the pandemic. And so when people's lives are affected by something so um, widespread as something like COVID, then there are going to be a lot of ideas out there that kind of attempt to put all the pieces together into a neat picture. And often that neat picture is either conspiratorial or oversimplified. Uh, and so people leaning toward the conspiratorial end is expected. Um, but when it comes to uh, the black American, uh, black African-American communities, um, I'm not familiar with the research on like, you know, how, what, what fraction of them are vaccine hesitant and for what reason, but it would make sense to me that um, if they don't trust doctors currently, maybe it's because of them feeling slighted, similar to Lydia Green, because we do know that um, there are problems with systemic racism in medicine, and there's also prejudice. So even if a doctor is not um, overtly racist, they might just be prejudiced to spend less time with um, a black person than a white person. They, um, or a black person might just not have good access to medical care and might not be as familiar with doctors and thus not have as many opportunities to have a good experience. So uh, it, it, I think there are lots of understandable reasons that people would be hesitant and uh, believe these kinds of things. It's interesting you mentioned that because um, two things there um, related to getting your own child vaccine and the experience with Lydia Green. Once she felt slighted or anybody feels slighted and you go online, you can find a welcoming community right away. Mm -hmm. So you feel, you know, gosh, what am I going to do? They're not listening to me. And oh, all of a sudden I have, here's a Facebook group, man, they're taking me seriously. They know exactly what I'm talking about. They're giving me all the answers, even though they're the wrong answers. So right away right. you're enveloped in a, a welcoming and caring community. Yes. Yeah. I, th I think that's a really, I mean, that's in my opinion, the reason that conspiracy theories seem so much more widespread these days, because it's so easy to find a community that believes the same thing you do, no matter what it is. I mean, you if you believe in Bigfoot, you can go online and find thousands of other people who say, I've seen Bigfoot and I believe it too. And you can find a community there. You can find camaraderie there. And that's something humans uh, 
long for, uh, that connectedness, that community. Uh, same thing with like ghosts or the Loch Ness monster, or if someone drank some stevia, uh, put some stevia in their in their uh, tea and drank it, and then had a bad health effect, and then they blame their problems on artificial sweeteners. You can find so many people online who would have that same experience. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean that it's uh, a real causal link or a phenomenon. All right, let's get right at your work now, your YouTube channel. So how do you choose a topic? Oh, uh, well, there's, usually I go on Twitter and oh. I see what's trending. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> These days, at least, uh, people will tag me and stuff. They'll send me stuff. Um, people will email me things. Um, I, my uh, feed, my algorithm is all just, excuse me, it's all screwed up. It's all terrible. I see all of the conspiracy theories all the time. So uh, it's a grab bag. And I kind of just pick something that is popular that I think deserves addressing or something that um, I think that I could effectively address. So yeah, uh, it's kind of a grab bag <laughs> most, most of the time, but um, whatever's trending and whatever I feel is uh, worth addressing. And I love the way that you do it as well, because you'll take the actual research and review it and put a link to it. Um, I don't bother to do that. Um, I probably should. It's easy enough. I mean, if anybody wants anything, they can just email me. I have it all on file anyway. But you'll actually, I mean, people will misrepresent science and then you'll take the study and say, wait a minute, it doesn't say that at all. It does if you truncate mm -hmm. it or you show this half of the graph or whatever they've mistake they've made. Um, and then you link right to it. So I, I really appreciate that. Let me ask you, well, you may have to, I don't know, maybe you'll have to be careful about how you phrase this or not, but I'm interested as, as a science communicator, you are a science communicator. Um, mm -hmm. What's the response been from peers and maybe even admin and human resources or professionals, if any? I mean, does anybody have anything to say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've gotten reactions for sure. Um, so when I was doing my PhD, uh, so in academia, I think that there are a there are a variety of different opinions on people who people like me who spend their time outside the lab um, doing this kind of thing, communicating these ideas. Um, some people think like it's a waste of time. They'll think, oh well, isn't that going to take away from your lab work? Isn't that going to like distract you from your normal everyday work and um is it even worth it like what are you doing <laughs> other people in academia um will say that's that's really great you know uh you are doing a service um and that's really cool um and i've gotten that reaction actually a lot uh since i've left academia pretty much i don't really talk about it much to my colleagues at work because it has nothing to do with my work and I don't really like to advertise myself or anything like that. Uh, but people have found out at work that I do this and their reactions have all been positive. Um, so yeah, it, it, it can be a mix of reactions. Uh, some scientists are very, very like, no, you don't need to be doing this. This is a waste of time and you're distracting yourself. Others, other people are like, yes, this is important. I see that misinformation is rampant and we need more science communicators. That's great. 
Um, those are the two main uh, kinds of reactions I've gotten. Wow, I'm so interested that you said all of that because um, I completed graduate school with a degree in science in the public. So a lot of it was about informal science education. I'm just, it's a conversation, so I have a lot of questions for you, but you just tipped yeah. me off here. I want to throw something back at you here. So for my final, it's just interesting what you just said. So for my final project, um, we do a big paper, of course, and, but also they like to have you do a project. So do something tangible for the public. So I produced a science cafe, right? So it's an informal atmosphere, a public audience. Somebody comes to present short, you know, usually it's short. With The, the point is Q&A with the public, all right? And so mm -hmm. that, the science cafe, it doesn't sound like much, but it was the process of years, well, weeks, months of writing, and that was the end result, but there's a lot that goes into the paper and all that. But one of the sections in my capstone paper was who presents and how to find them, right? So how are you going to find a scientist? And then within that section, there was research I discovered. I didn't do this research on my own. It was reading papers and then reporting what everybody else has found, okay? But the research I found about attitudes of science scientists on being science communicators to the public, it was very revealing. And, mm -hmm. I mean, in one survey of scientists, it was a small sample size, but they were concerned, just like you said, the time commitment. Was it the best use of time? Um, mm -hmm. It would take too much time to organize their material so the public could relate to it. You know, their research schedules, they'd have to alter their research schedule. They'd be better off writing papers. Um, and there were so many factors that a lot of them just considered science communication lost time because it didn't involve the chance for publication, right? Mm -hmm. And then they were also like you, and no, maybe not you, but they were also like most of us, they were kind of nervous about presenting in front of an audience. I mean, they're used to um, science conferences, but they were kind of nervous about presenting to the public that they wouldn't relate well, they wouldn't re represent their institution, um, they might confuse people rather than clarify, and they were concerned about doing Q&A because they were worried about giving direct answers, right? So that could be viewed as being evasive, which would just lead to more confusion. Um, mm -hmm. It was just, it kind of boils into everything that you said, um, except there was one other thing is that um, some people just felt it wasn't part of their job and they didn't see any value in it at all. Um, and although they did appreciate it, but they felt it was best left to others. And mm -hmm. half of the people surveyed, one big survey, which was like 6,000 scientists from dozens of universities, half of them, I think all of them had done it, or most of them, and half of them thought of it worthwhile, not only for the public, but they got something out of it too. But most of them, mm. did, they didn't feel supported by their administration. I'm talking academic administration. They mm. didn't feel supported by admin or colleagues for much of the reasons I just discussed. Um, you know, it's just lost time they considered. So, right. go. I don't know if you have anything to talk about there, but it's just interesting what you just mentioned. Definitely, yeah. I mean, in academia, you know, papers, uh, research papers are your currency. That's how you show like, hey, my lab is productive. My lab is doing important work. It's how you get uh, more grants uh, to continue doing your work and funding your lab and recruiting more postdocs and PhD students. Um, and so if you're not doing things that contribute towards um, publishing those papers or, you know, set faculty responsibilities, then people might look at you like, oh, well, you know, you couldn't review my paper the other month, but you have time to talk to these conspiracy nuts. What, what's up with that? And they might judge you. <laughs> so there's definitely that attitude. Um, but 
there's also a lot of positive attitudes. A lot I see, you know, there are a lot of uh, academic professors who run their own podcasts and do believe it's important. And I found a little community of that online as well. Uh, so that's been really nice. Uh, but I do, I do, I do uh, remember just this one story um, that you reminded me of. Uh, I, it was either 2018 or 2019, I can't remember, but there was a government shutdown. Um, and, you know, government shutdowns affect NIH grants, affect NSF grants. And um, there were, you know, online, there were lots of stories about people's science being put on hold or their jobs being up in the air because of this shutdown. And so I organized a letter writing session, just like send an email out to the department and set up outside the conference room uh, right before um, it was time for journal club or seminar. And I had like pre, um, I had templates for letters for people to write. And I had like a suggestion on if you don't want to come up with your own words, you can write this or you can just like kind of freeform it tell your um, representatives your opinion, uh, make your voice heard, that kind of thing. Because uh, I thought that was important. Um, and one professor <laughs> walked by me and was like, was like, um, don't you think the shutdown's going to be done by the time your letters get there? I'm like, thanks, dude. That's really encouraging. <laughs> but then another professor was like, this is awesome. Here's 20 bucks to pay for your stamps. Oh, wow. And I was like, Wow. Okay. So there you go. You know, two completely different attitudes on a student spending their time on something that they think is important. So there you go. So what's the online response been? You probably don't, I think I read on that you don't read your comments very often now, but people, but people, you're, you're easy to find. Um, mm -hmm. So if people really have a comment, they can reach out to you. So I'm just wondering, do you get all kinds of stuff like you're a total hack and uh, you're the problem to thanks, you've really helped me? Or is there a balance there? Or do you feel comfortable oh, talking yeah, about range. it? I, I'd say that most of the people who reach out to me directly are, are, are positive. Um, you know, uh, most of the negativity is going to be in the comments because those people don't listen and they don't read that I don't read the comments and they don't actually care about talking to me, so they just leave a comment. Um, but... Uh, yeah, people who reach out to me over email or direct message, uh, it's mostly positive or they're just asking me a question. Um, I'm really bad these days about responding to direct messages because, you know, two kids and full-time job, it's hard to keep hobbies going on top of all that. Um, but yeah, I've gotten messages from people who say things like, you know, I was really nervous about getting COVID vaccines and then I saw your videos and now I scheduled my first vaccine appointment and... I'd say, great, you know, that's awesome. Let me know if you have any more concerns. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, I've gotten messages from people who are offering corrections, uh, like they're supportive, but they're offering uh, corrections and things like when I made that video about RFK on Joe Rogan, I said things about, uh, I made analogies about chemistry and one or two chemists reached out and said, hey, here's how I think you can say this a little better. So I appreciate those kinds of emails as well. And of course, there are the emails that are just people being nasty, of <laughs> people saying, uh, you, you know, I've gotten death threats. Wow. I've gotten I've gotten hate. Uh, it's I, but I think it's par for the course, unfortunately, 
uh, for people in this space communicating these things. Um, I don't know of any science communicators like me who do this kind of thing and address conspiracy theories who haven't gotten things like death threats at least once, unfortunately. Um, but like I said, most direct messages are, are very positive. Well, I'm sorry for that. That's going to be quite startling. I mean, I've only been called a Nazi once. Uh, still, it's kind of, it hit me kind of hard, though, because it's just like, how can you be so, I mean, that's the dumbest, but they're comparing my work to the Nuremberg trials. Like, eventually I'm going to get tried because I'm an accomplice in the mass depopulation of, right. So, uh, mm -hmm. anyway. Yep. I've heard that before. <laughs> so, have you had, one thing also, have you had trouble with any videos being taken down? I remember I did Brian Deere, who wrote several uh, uh, articles about Wakefield, and then he wrote the book the doctor that fooled the world and I had mm. him on and we talked a lot and the video got taken down like twice I had to ask for it mm. to be reinstated it was but you know it's all because we were talking about vaccines and stuff so have you had that problem yeah yeah it's happened how many times I, I think I could count I think I could count on one hand how many times it's happened but okay it's that's good very annoying when it does um I've only ever had one video that never got reinstated it was like in my first year of making videos and the appeal failed and then I just gave up. <laughs> but since then, uh, whenever it's happened, the only way to get in touch with Team YouTube and have them actually reply is on Twitter, unfortunately. So um, that at least that's the only, only way I know of. Like they don't have a direct email or anything. Um, so you can say like you can tag Team YouTube on Twitter and be like, hey, my video got taken down. I was addressing misinformation. The video spreading misinformation is still up. What gives? And usually they, usually they do reinstate it after that. Not always. Um, but yeah, it's really annoying because it's just the algorithm picking up certain things and taking down a video. Um, so it, it's, it's been pretty annoying, uh, especially when the video is spreading misinformation are getting millions of views and are not being taken down. I guess we can't forget that, you know, a misinformation that generates millions of views is still millions of views and a lot of advertising for YouTube. Um, I don't know if that plays into it yeah. or not, but, you know, you might be hesitant to take down something that's generating a lot of income. You know, when you're, what is it, when you're, when your when your pocketbook is determined, I'm sorry, when your pocketbook is reliant on misinformation, you're probably less likely to <laughs> view it as misinformation. Oh yeah, and and mis videos spreading misinformation get way more views oh, than the the videos correcting it. I mean, I, I think my like my most viewed video might have like two hundred thousand views or something. That's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Uh, meanwhile, people like John Campbell are uploading like multiple videos a week that are getting hundreds of thousands of views each, um, just saying the most wild conspiracy theories and whatever's trending, literally whatever's trending on Twitter. Um, he will just make a video about it, get hundreds of thousands of views and he makes millions of dollars a year because of that. Do you, speaking of that, do you reach out to the pr producers of the content that you take on as videos? I mean, I'm just wondering if, mm -hmm. I mean, if some of them are, so you will reach out and say, listen, I'm doing this review of your stuff. Here's what I think. I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I mean, you do reach out to them. Oh, I usually, well, what I usually do is, um, I will let them know somehow, or, or like I'll tag them on social okay. media or, 
Um, I'll say in the video, hey, if you want to talk to me, here's my email. Um, but I'll usually do that like after the video goes up. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I do try to let people know because ultimately one of the goals of my channel was to have conversations with people, uh, whether it's people who I know aren't going to be convinced, like the ones spreading the misinformation, like there's no way they're going to admit in a conversation, you know what, everything I've said is wrong, you're right, I'm going to stop doing this. That, that's an unrealistic expectation Unless they were honest actors. Unless they were, but that is not an expectation that I, that I hold most of the time. Um, it, it, I think that's a good kind of... I think that's something good for science communicators to have in terms of expectation, because it can be... If you expect people to change their mind in a conversation like that, and they're a bad faith actor, and they're doing this for a living, um, they're not going to change their mind, and that might be really frustrating or discouraging. So I think it's good to have that expectation that you're not going to change someone like that's mind. Um, but anyway, uh, I do want to have those kinds of conversations. Just if not to convince the person I'm talking to, but to help the audience watching and show them that this person saying that vaccines cause whatever and autism and sudden death and whatever uh, has no idea what they're talking about and you shouldn't listen to them. Uh, I think showing that is, is a reasonable goal. Have you ever been uh, replied to like, oh, you're right, I was misinformed. I was just, I thought this was true. I'm just, just trying to spread the word and wow, you've really set me, not once? Not, not about someone who I've made a video about. Oh. No. So Brett Weinstein, no, so. you didn't hear from Brett Weinstein? <laughs> no, no. Well, I, I have to remind him of that, actually. I have to remind him that he never, he never responded, and he said he would. Oh, he did? <laughs> oh, well, he said that in his video, right. <laughs> uh, he, <clears throat> so... Uh, maybe you want to set uh, this up a little bit, so anybody that's... Yeah, let me, let me explain. So um, Brett Weinstein um, had an episode with Michael Shermer, uh, and in that episode, he made several f very false claims about um, vaccines and the response being autoimmune and vaccines causing autoimmunity and that leading to this whole host of problems. So uh, that was incorrect. Vaccines do not cause autoimmunity. They cause an immune response against a foreign antigen, which by definition is not autoimmunity. <laughs> Um, so I decided to have immunologists come, uh, and explain, uh, because he said that in his video, he said, if immunologists tell me I'm wrong, I will admit I'm wrong. So I thought, cool. Okay, let's do that. And so I had some experts send me clips after listening to Brett Weinstein and I included that in my video. Um, and then Michael Shermer on Twitter, uh, I think he tagged Brett or let him know somehow in a post um, that, hey, this video was made about you. And Brett responded to that tweet saying, saying, um, I will respond in full, essentially, was the, was the point. And that was almost two months ago now, something like that. Uh, it's been a while and nothing. Haven't heard anything from him. So I need to remind well, That's him. interesting because he publicly stated, like, like you said, if I'm wrong, let me know. So... You're wrong. Here you mm -hmm. go. Um, 
I would yeah. view him, that'd be interesting though, because he is a scientist, right? He's a biologist. And I would view him as someone that's been corrected before and has corrected other people, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's, there are several, I mean, there are several people who are scientists or doctors who are currently spreading misinformation about COVID. Right. Um, I don't know exactly what Brett's story is. I know that he used to be an evolutionary biologist. Now he's a full-time podcaster. Um, but it, it's, it's not unheard of for scientists to kind of go rogue, um, and just get this idea that they are right and their idea has to be right and nothing can convince them otherwise. Um, which, you know, you kind of, sometimes you see little bits of that in real scientists in academia, um, but it's not taken to that extent that Brett does. Um, for example, like when I was doing my PhD, um, and I think a lot of PhD students can, um, can relate to this. My advisor, uh, and me, because I, I would, um, talk with my advisor and we both come up with ideas together or he would have his own idea. But a lot of times your advisor has this idea that they have and they're like, I want you to do these experiments and test this idea. And, you know, I think we're going to get these results and show that this is what's going on. And then you as a PhD student go and do your experiments and you have to come back to your advisor during lab meeting and say, Hey, yeah, the experiments didn't work or these are the results. We didn't get we expected these don't make any sense or this result isn't significant. And then it's, that is met with stubbornness like, Oh, okay, well uh, maybe we can do this experiment and, or maybe we missed something and blah, blah, blah. Um, there is often that stubbornness in science where it's like, let's really try to dig deeper into this and make sure that, we're not missing anything because I really want this idea to be true. But ultimately, if the data never shows it's true, then you have to accept it. And that's what we did um, during my PhD. We had this idea that this domain of this protein was doing something really, really important. And it just wasn't like the data just was showing over and over again. It's just not that important. So we had to come to terms with that <laughs> and except that our initial idea was wrong and we had to pivot our experiments. And that's when my project became more successful than it was. Um, but I think that some scientists like Brett might take that attitude and bring it to the extreme where they have this idea, they believe it's right. Everyone keeps telling them it's wrong. The data keeps telling them it's wrong, but they are so committed to it and they have this identity attached to it which just makes them continue believing it. Someone like Brett Weinstein, though, I probably shouldn't talk about much. I don't know the guy, but he's not doing firsthand research. He's taking other people's data and making a statement on it. So you were doing firsthand yeah. research, um, but it's important to find out what doesn't work. So what you did that told you it wasn't working and that you're going in the wrong direction, that's incredibly valuable information. So now nobody mm -hmm. else will make that mistake, right? Exactly. And then you yeah. pivoted. I think when I had Dr. Paul Offit on, he said it took like, I can't remember if it was 20 years and 26 billion or 26 years and 20 billion to finally get the Rototech virus. I'm um, sorry, the Rototech vaccine, you know, and they mm -hmm. made a lot of mistakes along the way. But every mistake yeah. tells you what you're not doing right or what isn't working. That's incredibly valuable information. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that is the scientific process to um, do things that don't work and then improve them uh, through repetition and this kind of chipping away at getting to a real answer or something that works. And uh, I mean, that's what the that's what the phrase uh, standing on the shoulders of giants means. Like if you were thrown in blind to make the same 1000 mistakes that the person before you made, then you're not going to make any progress. But because people made a thousand mistakes before you, you can learn from that and not waste all those years making those exact same mistakes. So not to mention, you you don't have to build your own microscope. Right. You yeah, don't, you don't have to build your own microscope. You don't have to, there's so much you don't have to do. You don't have to write mm-hmm. your own statistics program. Right. Right. Back to exactly what you do, though. I guess we digressed there a little bit. It was interesting to me anyway. So, what's your favorite, or what's your, I, I guess, favorite, what's your favorite thing that you've taken on? I mean, some claims are just unbelievable, like all vaccines are a depop- depopulation conspiracy and every doctor in the world's in on it. Right. So, what's mm-hmm. the most egregious thing you've taken on? that you thought was just seemingly beyond belief? Do you have a, I guess favorite's the wrong word, but Uh, I'll use it. Yeah, I'll I'll focus on most egregious. Okay, all right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s HIV AIDS denialism is the most egregious thing I've taken on, in my opinion. Uh, It's a hot contest for the most egregious, but that's what I'll choose. Um, Because it's just so ridiculous, so harmful. And a lot of people don't know that RFK Jr. pushes those ideas. Um, In his book that he um, highly publicized and uh, was highly celebrated among anti-vaxxers, the the real Anthony Fauci, uh, he pushes those ideas. He pushes the idea that HIV, or sorry, that AIDS is not caused by HIV, that it's caused by lifestyle, like drug use, um, and homosexual, um, behaviors, uh, just spontaneously. So yeah, I mean, that's what the idea is that you live this lifestyle of doing poppers and partying and having sex all the time. And that's what causes your immune system to deteriorate. Um, he, he, he tries to be really weaselly in his, in his book and say that he's agnostic on the idea that on whether HIV causes AIDS, but he pushes that narrative very hard and promotes all of the people who have traditionally championed those ideas in that book. Um, and so it's just despicable in my, in my opinion that he pushes that and gets away with it. Getting at a scientific truth is difficult, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, oftentimes, oftentimes, sometimes not, but you know, but accepting an explanation, even if it's flawed, I mean, many many people prefer some explanation. Sorry, many people like an explanation compared to no explanation, right? Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. mentioned before, it gives them a sense, specifically with Lydia Green and conspiracies. I mean, it gives you a community right away, and then they give you a way to control it too. Here, don't do this, do this. We know what's going on. You want to comment on that before I move on? I- sure, definitely. I mean, I think that's a big motivator for why people believe in conspiracy theories because it's. It's uncomfortable to have uncertainty. It's uncomfortable to not know things. And in a time like the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, especially in that first year uh, where there was a lot of uncertainty 
I mean, we were all doing things we'd never done before, staying home from work, not gathering, not going out, um, keeping kids home from school, um, not traveling uh, practic practically at all. Uh, those were big things that brought a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know how long it would last. We didn't know if the virus would become more dangerous over time. We didn't know if we would have a vaccine or a treatment anytime soon. And so when some someone comes in and says, I have all the answers, the virus came from a lab, it's nothing to worry about, you don't need to change your lives for it, go about your day. <laughs> like when someone says all that, it can be, it can offer a solution and people might just accept it. Uh, so, uh, but you have, you have to be skeptical. And if you are skeptical to those ideas, then they fall apart rather quickly. Um, and you just have to recognize that science can take time to get you those actual answers. So following from that, science is oftentimes difficult. Sometimes it's not, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. So what I mean is when ivermectin, sorry, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, those are experiments that could be run, right? So it's not simple in the sense of it's totally simple, but it's a sim simple concept, right? You get two groups. Is there a difference between groups? There's no difference. It doesn't work. I, all right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, it's a lot more involved than that, but that's like... Right. 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 It would take a lot more. That's the bare bones of it. Yeah. That's the bare bones of it. So it's, it's the concept is simple anyway. Right. So people can understand that concept. In your investigation of some of those claims that seem like they could be easily resolved. Right. We did the test. Two groups. No difference. I mean, have you found where the misinformation originates? Do you get that to the bottom of it? Yeah. Um, with ivermectin, um, it all really started when uh, this one guy, Pierre Corey, uh, who is a doctor, um, he went in front of, I don't remember if it was Congress or a state legislator, but he went in front of them, you know, in his white lab coat at a time when we had pretty much zero data on how effective ivermectin was against COVID. And he just said, it's a miracle drug. It obliterates COVID. We can end this pandemic now. That went viral. And he just spoke it into existence because he got that platform and so many people believed him. Um, and I remember at the time I made a video about it and my message of that video was essentially, we don't know if ivermectin works right now, it, but it's definitely not a miracle drug because, uh, you know, it has, we, we had had some, some weak observational trials, uh, about it, which if it's a miracle drug, people, you know, it would be pretty obvious. But my, my point was, it's irresponsible of him to be saying this. We don't have the data yet, but it's probably not a miracle drug. And then the randomized controlled trial started coming in and it just wasn't effective. Like no matter how we tested it, if we tested ivermectin on someone who just tested positive for COVID and they're not, they're not like horribly sick or showing symptoms yet, doesn't work, doesn't help. Tested it on people who are already hospitalized, doesn't work, doesn't help. Tested it on people who, um, you know, were not yet exposed. Prophylaxis, doesn't work, doesn't help. It just kept showing that over and over again. But because, because there was that viral moment of a guy in a white lab coat just speaking into existence all of these wild and fantastic claims on, on a platform like sitting in front of legislators, people believed it. And it's really hard to dispel that. Um, people, 
science communicators um, often say that it takes 10 times as much work or whatever number you want to say to debunk an idea than it is to just, just put it out there. Um, and a, another saying would be like a lie travels around the world three times before the truth gets its shoes on. It, it's very true. It's very hard to um, dispel all those, all, all the, all of that myth after an event like that happens. Now, let me just mention one of the most egregious things I saw that you took on was COVID causes MS. And the, the mm. reason I thought that was egregious was because when I watched your video and the two reasons, one is you can see right in the background, the first sentence says the vaccines are safe and effective. You can see it in this mm -hmm. paper the person is referring to, right? The other mm -hmm. thing is that was just the title of somebody's talk at a, at a convention. He'd come up with this abstract, you know, and that was the title of it. And then I read an interview with him where he said, you know, I probably, you know, I was wording it that way. I paraphrase, okay. Um, don't take this literally, but it seemed to me like he said, you know, I kind of, I needed to get some people interested in my research. So that's, mm. maybe mm. it was irresponsible of me to word it that way. But mm. that was really egregious, I thought, just claiming that, and then that the paper had disappeared when there never was any paper. It was just an abstract, abstract for a poster or something, right? So, yeah. so that was pretty egregious to me, claiming, not only claiming it, but oh, it was a who paper. Now it's disappeared. We can't find it anywhere. And, and, and you can see right in the background, it says they're safe and effective. Um, mm -hmm. And then the next one is the excess death thing, right? People claiming excess deaths are attributable, attributable to the COVID vaccines, but even their own graphics show that the excess deaths are declining. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. They have to make they have to do so much mental gymnastics and manipulation of the data to make that idea convincing in the slightest. Um, one one common thing that they do now is they'll say countries that are highly vaccinated, like Australia or New Zealand or um, some of the more vaccinated European countries, they'll say, "Oh, look, they have excess deaths now." Well, what happened was they had negative or hardly any excess deaths during 2020, 2021, because they enacted measures to reduce or prevent COVID infections entirely. Um, like the example of New Zealand is really good because they had negative excess deaths for 2020 and 2021 because they were not getting flu. They weren't getting COVID. They weren't getting RSV. They weren't getting all of the normal viruses that circulate uh, on a regular basis. And so uh, that saved a lot of lives. But then when they open up, then COVID comes back, RSV comes back, flu comes back, then you return to baseline. So it looks like excess, but it's just returning to what was normal. Meanwhile, while they were locked down during 2021, getting 80 plus percent of their population vaccinated, still negative excess deaths. And so there is no way around that, but anti-vaxxers will try to lie to avoid that fact. All right, one more question, then I'll let you go. I know you're a busy guy, two kids, um, a lot of work to do, and plus you probably have your own video to produce if I'm not mistaken. But in a, just about school, something you said in a previous video that was interesting to me, um, in a previous video, you spoke a little bit about taking time off between degrees versus staying in school from degree, from degree to degree. And I know this is uh -huh. kind of off topic, but I'm just thinking, you know, anybody watching this and saying, oh, wow, I really like what you do and I want to become a communicator and, you know, how do I get to be like Dr. Dan Wilson? Um, 
That was interesting to me because I took time off between degrees. I got an undergraduate in jazz and contemporary music, a few years off playing. Um, then I went back to graduate school. Everything made a lot more mm -hmm. sense after I worked in the community, right? Because you take what you learn in school and you have to... It's useful knowledge, but when you really put it into practice, that's where the learning takes place. And when mm -hmm. I went back to graduate school, there were a lot of people that just went from undergrad to grad. And I didn't, personally speaking, during the seminars where we're all supposed to talk, they didn't really have much to contribute. Um, I'm not slighting anybody there, but I'm just saying <laughs> no. that was my experience. So, um, and I just did it again. I got another graduate degree with people that are just going right through. My point is, um, can you speak about time off between degrees, your experience with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. Uh, I went straight from undergraduate to graduate. No offense, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, like, look, so if you're an undergrad and you go to grad, uh, go to graduate school, there is going to be a learning curve. You know, you are, if, if you're like the top of your class in undergrad, you go to graduate school, you're not top dog anymore. Like you have to humble yourself. You have to realize that there's a lot to learn and that can be jarring for a lot of people. Um, you know, cause undergraduate, some schools are really, really competitive. So students try really hard to get on top. And then when they go to grad school, they're not on top anymore. And it's really unsettling. Um, so I think that taking time off is totally worth it. Um, a lot of people in my program that I've seen, uh, who took time off or to like work a lab job before, uh, coming into grad school, they were more comfortable more, um, more, uh, settled in both their, both their skills and um, their confidence, uh, which I think helped them do do really well in grad school. Um, not to say you have to, but I think that I think the point is like there's nothing wrong with taking time off and trying to work a job in between degrees. Um, I think it could only help you um, because not only will you gain more skills, you'll get more perspective to uh, decide if that's even what you want to do, if you even want to get a PhD. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll come into grad school more prepared, more, um, centered and more financially stable because you don't, <laughs> you're going to make a fixed amount of money during your four to six years of PhD and it's not going to be much. <laughs> so <laughs> that's part of it too. But yeah, don't, 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 uh, feel weird about taking time off and do as much to do as much as you can to learn about what you're getting into in grad school. Cause like I said, it can be jarring. It's a very different environment and there are a lot of challenges that are going to be dependent on your department and your lab. But, um, if you really want to know the, if you really want to get the tea on whose lab to join in whatever department you're in, just get the grad students alone and ask them, are you happy? Would you pick this lab again? Ask them those kinds of questions. You know, you, you did say something about how do people be like a science communicator? Um, you know, I would say if you want to be a science communicator, just find the topics that excite you and just start uh, doing it. Start in whatever media you want, whether you want to write a blog, if you're better at writing and you don't want to be on camera, if you want to be on camera, if you want a podcast, I mean, look at me encouraging people to start podcasts, but seriously, if you want to, if you want to communicate, like 
if you think that there's disinformation online or there are topics that you just think people need to know about and you have expertise in and you're excited by that, just start doing it. And it might be bad at first. It's probably going to be bad. Don't watch my first few videos. They're terrible quality. <laughs> but um, you got to get past that. You got to just start doing it. You're going to get better. And you're not going to get better unless you actually start. So um, if it's something that you think you want to do, just do it and see where it goes. Dr. Dan Wilson, I must say I greatly appreciate your time and thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that you post the links to your studies. Maybe the ones I've mentioned here today I'll post as well. Um, I will tell everybody here that, you know, a subscription to Debunk the Funk makes a great gift and a subscription is free. <laughs> so you can, just, is free. <laughs> you can just send out the links and say, hey, here's a guy worth listening to. The videos, unlike mine, they're kind of short if they can be. Sometimes they are longer, but a lot of them it doesn't take much time to. I mean, it takes you a lot of time. But when you compile it into a video, it's fairly quick to watch. Um, and also it's a learning thing because you learn about how science works. You know, you've got That's to study. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Dan Wilson. Have a great holiday season, and maybe we'll speak again sometime. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Same to you. And yeah, talk again soon.